0: Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy Podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Welcome to the Live Healthy podcast. Today we have Dr. Remy Shanker. She's a medical doctor with a master's degree in dietetics and applied nutrition, and she's a wellness specialist at New York University Abu Dhabi. And welcome, welcome to you. It's good to see you.
1: Thank you. you. Thank you for having me.
0: She's also a member of our livehealthy.ae expert panel, so we're happy to have you there too, and you've, you've written some really cool articles for us. First of all, I'm I'm really interested, you told me this story, but I'd like to just, not many people go to medical school and then go on to earn their master's in nutrition and dietetics. Like, can you just sort of explain how that came about for you?
1: Yeah. So um, my journey of embracing the whole idea of holistic balance came relatively around the time I graduated med school. So I've always been fascinated with how the first line of treatment for most non-communicable diseases is lifestyle management. And we always hear this as a buzzword, right? But in traditional medicine, we kind of rarely touch upon the breadth of the knowledge with what entails um, lifestyle management. So, of course, we do learn the physiological and biochemical interactions and the implications with each condition, but the link to functionality is often left wide to um, interpretation. So, this is why to kind of expand my horizons toward a much Functional approach with medicine, I pursued um, my master's in dietetics and applied nutrition. And then with that knowledge combined, I was able to discover a whole new paradigm in wellness, which is um, heuristic, which is proactive, and it's not just being reactive. So that's basically why I kind of went and you know, kind of diverged from the traditional medical line towards you know, actually um, embracing nutrition as part of a more holistic approach in how we look at certain things or lifestyle conditions in today's world. Are, do you find, what do you see when you
0: look at the whole reaction to COVID-19 and the focus on vaccines and you know do you get frustrated? about the, do you get frustrated or what's your perception about the actual health of people heading into COVID and their ability to not to not get
1: sick? Do you, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. So yeah, and, and this goes back to, you know, understanding um, that holistic balance and that functionality to how we actually approach uh, life with. So a lot of times, um, so so the 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 whole pandemic is actually an accelerator, right? It's acted as a way to actually kind of put focus on things that were not working in the first place, right? So um, when we weren't taking care, or if we were in a certain scenario where we aren't taking care of our nutrition, of our wellness, of you know not paying attention to basically small little cues that our body's actually talking to us about. We're um literally falling or, or turning a blind eye to you know these key aspects of it. So while it's great that you know we have certain mechanisms or the way public health is working toward you know getting vaccines, I think it's important to take a step back and really think about how you're able to look at your immunity in a very different way. Because when we talk about immunity, we're talking about pre-existing conditions and while they may not be loud and up and close and in your face that you know, you might have certain lifestyle conditions. If you're going as you know, life is right here and it's not really, you know, in the best health level or on the worst health level, you're still opening up yourself or you're, you're susceptible to actually getting any immunocompromised disease, right. Or condition. So Um, My view to that is really take a step back and understand evolution and design, if that's, you know, in in, in some way to really think about the functionality of how we put our health and wellness rather than just uh, putting blind faith into slapping, you know, medications over medications um, on conditions. And that's, that's possibly my take on, you know, the vaccine and, you know, looking at your health in a more heuristic and proactive way than just being reactive.
0: Well, I've been interested in reading about the debates between um, germ theory, which is the sort of prevailing medical theory that, you know, something's going to attack and you hear a lot of that language about COVID and all the wartime language and terrain yeah. theory and all the people on the far ends of both. I think there's, I'm not obviously a doctor, but there seems to be validity in both, but that, you yeah. know, the idea that you can create a terrain in your body that is actually fairly resilient and can yeah. maybe not even get the cold or get, get the flu or get COVID if, if you're exposed to it? Is that, is that sort of what that theory is talking about?
1: Yeah, I guess, see, the way we look at things is, and I've had a lot of experience with, you know, um, mothers or students or even um, clients talking about um, now that I've stayed at home for some amount of time, I am finding that I haven't fallen sick. For a long time, I don't have allergies. I don't have certain things that have come about. And obviously, obviously these are different uh, lived experiences and different shared experiences of people. And I do understand that you know stress also causes. And even though you're not getting out in the world right now, stress also causes you know an immunocompromised condition, which probably exposes you to colds and things like that. But in this scenario, we're in a very different, unprecedented. Time right now where most of the things are virtual. And since we are in this bubble where we're not exposing ourselves to various things, we're able to concentrate more on our health and wellness. So you're actually, like you just said, you know, creating a trade in your body and really thinking about those aspects can help and save you from a whole lot of other things. So now that we have the time. We're looking at, oh, what can I cook? How can I improve my immunity? Can I have a turmeric latte? Every now and then, right? You're, you're thinking about different kinds of things. If we're, we're all Googling and researching things like, you know, functional compounds. What does that mean? While in our busy lives, where life was going in warp speed and, you know, you're seizing the day and, you know, going to meetings physically, we're hardly thinking about, oh, functional compounds. Yeah, that's for whatever. That's for a different time. But right now we're actually proactively thinking about these things. So there is that train of thought within both theories that you can actually bring it to the middle ground here and think about your holistic wellness from various aspects, not just the physical aspect, but from the mental health aspect, from the social aspect, from the financial aspect, which you know then comes together as a very, very holistic way of thinking about your wellness and balance means different things to different people, right, we're all unique. What does fun, what are
0: functional compounds? Now, now that you mention it, I don't know what those are.
1: <laughs> so functional compounds are basically so so things like which we find naturally in plant-based foods, like let's say not just plant-based foods, but anything found in nature, right? So let's say turmeric has the whole functional compound like curcumin, right? Um, and. Uh, You have, you know, various things like anthocyanin and, you know, things in chocolate, things that are found in blueberries, things that are very functionally, they act toward supporting various body processes within our body as we're even, you know, talking to each other here. Um, there are so many other processes happening on autopilot right now, which we're not even aware. But with the right kind of diet, we're supporting all of these things. So the body is a constant, amazing machine that's working, and these functional compounds literally just, you know, grease those those you know cogs and wheels and things like that. That's
0: the. Okay, and this is why you hear the same foods over and over and over. They're always looking for superfoods, but you're always hearing blueberries, you're always hearing walnuts, you're hearing turmeric, you're hearing you those things you hear over and over and over. This is why.
1: Yeah. And and, and th- this is another thing, like superfoods have been like, you know, in the, it has been a buzzword, right? For the last decade. And we'll be talking about superfoods and literally everything is a superfood as long as, you know, it works for you, right? So this is my thing about superfoods. Everything has functionality if it works for you. And I think we're, we're the be- best judge of thinking about frequency and thinking about, you know, how much is too much is always the question we should ask for ourselves. So if someone giving you a general or a generic guideline, like eat this, This functional compound is good. This superfood is good. It doesn't work because like I said, we're all unique, right? So what works for me may not work for you. And one man's food is another man's poison. So it's important to think about, you know, uh, functionality also in that way and superfoods also in that way. Anything you eat should be a superfood because we all have superpowers, so. Okay, and you find
0: this out if it's good for you because you know how you feel when you eat it? Is that basically how you know?
1: That's exactly it, because physical cues, right? I always say this, like one of the one of your all-time favorite podcasts are streaming right now, and that's your body. It's constantly trying to talk to you. It's constantly trying to give you cues, and all it takes is for you to just listen, right? So um, all we need to do is just be in tune with our body, get rid of most distractions, and I know it's very difficult to do that, but that's where mindfulness comes as a practice. It's just it's a great muscle, right? It's just like a muscle. You need to flex that every now and then to get
0: well, it to I work. get really confused because just the other day, someone was saying that their, um, their husband has a, an enlarged heart. So she was talking about a diet that will help that. And then it was, you know, the conversation, it's cucumbers are bad for you. Um, nightshades, you know, tomatoes, mm-hmm. eggplant. I hear that a lot. And then I, I think they're bad, but then I eat them and I feel fine. So I don't know, like, you know, the, yeah. this is the new sort of thing. There's superfoods and then yeah. there's, vegetables that you thought you could eat like tomatoes I thought I I thought I was doing an amazing job when I was eating them what is that how do you decipher decipher through that
1: yeah so while that's true in certain sciences like you know and and I'm not going to contest that you know in terms of of course there are certain um, ill effects of nightshade vegetables there are certain ill effects of cruciferous vegetables which could you know uh, propel certain kinds of uh, autoimmune conditions and things like that but what is something that we miss in, that, in those sciences, on those studies is balance and moderation, right? So when you're talking about nightshade, you're not eating like a zillion tomatoes and then feeling, you know, that's when you start feeling those effects, right? So everything in moderation, you put a few cherry tomatoes in your salad, come on. I mean, that's, yeah. that's great, right? So as long as you're feeling great with that and you're using mindfulness to you know understand that, wait, when I eat this, I'm feeling good, just like you said that's fine, right? If you feel like it's bloating, you feel skin allergies, you feel all of these things coming up, then you know there's something wrong. And then you can actually note it down and simply on your phone, right? On the notes app of your phone, just note it down. It's as simple as that.
0: I feel like this is sort of becoming a new eating disorder because there's orthorexia where people are obsessed with (laughs) cleaning, but I feel like people are becoming, I don't know. I just feel like when you drill down, none of us have the time to worry about if a particular vegetable or, you know, exactly <laughs> um okay so we we're going to talk about screen time and sort of relating to everything and to do with health and i thought that was interesting so um this, it's so interesting cuz it has helped us get through this it has helped us realize how to save time i've heard of i've read about ceos that are like i don't need to fly across the country for that meeting anymore i realized i didn't need to be there in person so clearly it's good but it's also a bad habit for us we've all upped our screen time so What do you, what do you, why do you think we need to change it in your view? What, what's your, what do you see?
1: Right. So I, I actually love the fact that, you know, certain things are virtual and, you know, as, as a millennial myself, I can't complain about technology. I'd be lying if I say that, you know, uh, certain things are bad for ourselves the technology is bad. But then again, when we come back to the conversation of balance and moderation, I think what's happened is, like like I'd said before, the pandemic has acted like an accelerator, right? To basically implicit autopilot lifestyle habits that probably never worked for us in the first place at a conscious level. So this is this is an astonishing revelation now that we have um, in this in these times that we have a real serious problem with inanimate dependency. Right? So with the constant dependency of the uh, screen now expedited with, you know, the shift to a virtual world, screen fatigue is now that new normal in our lives. So while it saves a whole lot of other um, aspects, like you said, as, you know, people don't have to fly across the world. You can just have a webinar or you can just have a Zoom meeting or you can just have uh, various other things conducted virtually. This element of, you know, the overuse of screens has become a problem. So, um what I think is we should really cozy up to the you know idea of understanding what do we really enjoy authentically um, as evolution intended in design so um it wh- when we talk about evolution intended in design, it certainly does not consider screens right in the in in the mix so. I think we should start to move away from the screen a little bit uh, more or really be conscious of the amount that we're using right now uh, during the pandemic. So rather than sitting on your smartphone or any other device and you know, scrolling down those social media uh, feeds, um, is probably one of the uh, biggest ways that we're not practicing self-care also within uh, this entire paradigm of screen fatigue. Because what happens when you're constantly on the, on the screen is obviously there's the whole thing of headaches, there's the whole thing of eye strain, um, you have unexplained pains, which you're not able to understand after a long period of time, or you've spent so much time at the screen and then you have these unexplained aches and pains that come up in the um, evening. Um, it's it's possibly because of the strain that you're putting your body to, even though you're sitting in one place and, you know, just looking at something that's a strain for the body, because that's not how the human body was designed to be in the first place. Um, and then the overuse of screens and the overuse of, um, let's say even social media as platforms, it increases stress, right? It, it kind of reduces focus. It kind of exhilarates burnout. So, while the screen is undoubtedly here to stay for the next many decades, um, as organisms uh, who are able to employ even higher centers of reasoning and logical decisions, we're really able to dynamically soar beyond that um, lizard brain capacity. So the lizard brain is basically that primitive part of our brain which uh, kind of purely reacts to the survival mode. And with with really moving away from that or consciously employing the higher centers or our mammalian brain, we're able to reimagine our evolution and dependence on screens for a better and healthier tomorrow. Because um, during the pandemic, if it has increased, then imagine um, how things or processes are going to work after this. Also, people are going to think about, you know, using more and more screens to make it more cost effective. And while While that's a great thing in some ways, I feel like we're then taking 10 steps back in terms of our health and wellness with what are we exposing ourselves to, you know, right now with so much of that screen fatigue.
0: Yeah, because you can't blame work and your kid's school for the Uh, fact that you pick up your phone instead of deciding what it is you really want to do, right? Like, I know that's one thing that happens is I pick up my phone because for me to make a decision about like, do I want to sit down and do yoga or do I want to go for a walk? It's just easier. And the other thing I've noticed, um, in, in in addition to all those aches and pains, sometimes at the end of the day, when I've been flipping through all my phones and all my social media, I feel actually nauseous. If I've had a many, many, many hours, there's an actual nausea. And I don't know if it's like the, the rapid movement of my eye, maybe combined with the wireless exposure, because everything you have, like your mouse and your whatever, all those things are communicating wirelessly. There's yeah.
1: Pain. And I love you have brought that up. I love the fact that you brought up, you know, nausea as an effect. So think about how sometimes we feel nauseous when we read a book in a moving car, yeah. you know, that same phenomenon. That's the same thing that we're doing right now with screen. So there is a powerful mechanism with, you know, the lighting and all of these things that come into play and the way, the way we're actually employing our eyes onto the screen. So it's working in the same mechanism. I, I won't call it motion sickness just yet, but it, it has the same kind of you know processes that's running through our body. So yes, a lot of us feel that too, right? At the end of the day, we're working in front of the screen and that's what happens. A whole yeah. lot of those pains and aches and things of those sorts. And what else is it? So you talked about fight or flight. How about sleep? Right. So um, like with with the way we're working right now and, and the way screen fatigue is kind of taking over our lives, um, it's kind of the same way our body registers right now as a lack of sleep, right? So think about the times when we don't get a good night's sleep. Um, it kind of affects our mood behaviors, our eating patterns, uh, our productivity, the way we move, the way we practice kindness and compassion to ourselves and those around us. So essentially, your body's asking you to slow down and it's literally pleading with you to, you know, take care of yourself. So in these times, even now when we're able to maybe accommodate for a good night's sleep, let's say, we're still seeing these effects is because of the prolonged use of screens and vice versa, when you use an increased amount of, you know, screen time, you obviously, um, you're you're kind of exposing yourself to certain kinds of lights or certain kinds of um, radiations even that don't, that kind of mess your circadian rhythm. So that's also another, you know, spectrum of how we're looking at it. So um, there are two kinds of Thing. So one is that screen fatigue can register like a lack of sleep, and it can also impact your quality of sleep. So it has so many different ways of kind of seeping into our lives uh, right now. So I think, I think we need to start understanding that even when we face these lethargic effects, just like we face when we don't have a good night's sleep, and studies have actually shown this, this could be attributable to, you know, the increased dependencies on Screens, So I think it's important to think of, you know, sleep from a more holistic point of view when we talk about even screens and how that's actually impacting us and our rhythms and routines and our, you know, the whole body clock, the whole internal body clock of ours.
0: I, uh, the other night, I didn't use my phone for like four hours before bed, which is unheard of. And I turned my Wi-Fi off because I read an article that said you should turn your Wi-Fi off at night. And I had an amazing night's sleep. I'm just anecdotally saying that. Did I do it the next day? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah that, that's difficult to come by right that's a difficult practice we've become so dependent on things it's a very difficult thing to do but like you said you know switching off your wireless yeah it makes a difference you know in, in so many different ways and I would encourage people you know listening to this also try that out you know try it out maybe you don't see it the first time maybe you don't see it the second time but over time you'll realize oh wait there is something you know there is something about the quality of my sleep when I do this
0: what do what are your okay? So did you did you see the social dilemma everyone's talking about that Netflix? Yeah. documentary. I loved right at the end when they were saying um uh, all they were saying all their rules and they all said turn off your notifications turn off your notifications um don't you know and so what are your rules what do you do do you turn off your notification what do you do with your kids?
1: Yeah, so. Uh, that's a great question, actually, with kids, especially since, you know, with the whole homeschooling and they're constantly on their iPads now, right? And they have kind of dissociated from the whole thing that this is for um, leisure or this is a pleasure thing. And this is, you know, where I have to study. So it's complete mess. The lines are pretty blurred with that. Um, So with, with kids and even, and this works for, you know, everyone across the age spectrum is probably having downtime Um, before you go to bed. So about an hour or two, shut off from any of the, you know, devices. Um, Connect with yourself. Really think about what am I going to do next day without having to look at, you know, your calendar on the phone, right? So think about those things. Try and organize things in your head for that, within your, you know, entire body clock and using your entire internal rhythm. And um, like you said, turn off notifications, turn off, you know, put on the do not disturb thing on your you know, devices and keep it there, even if you don't want to shut it off. Um, but yeah, that downtime is very important to reconnect with our authenticity. So you can even have smaller practices like, you know, affirmations, small little things that you can uh, tell yourself, box breathing, a great way to, you know, kind of encourage Um, thoughts in and thoughts out as a rhythmic uh, balance that also gives you a good quality of sleep and reduces your stress levels.
0: Can you explain box breathing?
1: Yeah, so box breathing is basically um, a practice of simply breathing. So the, 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 the really funny part about breathing is that we need it to have for our life force. And it's, a, it's the most powerful free tool also available at our disposal, which we hardly ever think about. So box breathing is basically conscious breath work. It's nothing but you know just engaging uh, breathing in a very conscious manner. So really um, doing it by the count. So um, take it inhale uh, at the count of four or maybe let's say a minute, Hold and then exhale again at the count of four. Or you could use any number, four, five, whatever be your, you know, whatever is your jam. So you can use any number, but obviously you don't want to hold your breath for a long time. But this practice is basically just getting in touch with the rhythm of how you're breathing. So with that, over time, what happens is you're able to then control thoughts in and the thoughts out, which then creates a sort of decluttering me- mechanism in our own um, headspace, which is great for our mental health, our emotional stability, the quality of our sleep, and so many other paradigms that we can look at. Okay.
0: What other things would you suggest people pursue? Because um, everything seems to be on your phone. You know, when even when you think about something else, you're like, oh, that's my iPad. Oh, that's watching TV. Oh, that's, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, see, there, there are so many different ways where we're able to actually kind of disconnect from this dependency of the era and then reconnect with our authenticity. So one of the few ways is divesting from, you know, um, let's say videos or uh, the things on our phone that we actually watch toward um, podcasts, right, which help us learn valuable skills. So you're now you're employing a different kind of uh, uh, sensory pathway, which is hearing. and Thinking of, you know, employing even... Uh, using podcasts that let us know or let us learn valuable skills and then engaging that with movement could be another way of, you know, looking at things. So uh, you're trying to prioritize two things that could be good for yourself. One is listening to something that adds onto your skill uh, while you're moving your body, right? But you don't have to do both together if if you're not comfortable with doing that. You can always do these, you know, tear these uh, two activities aside, but it really helps set priorities also during your day. So, so, why I say a podcast again? Because of the you know whole thing of employing a different kind of sensory pathway, rather than causing or just you know putting the strain on one sensory pathway to cause eye strains and headaches. You know, so you're you're kind of divesting from that. And one of the great podcasts is right here, right at Live Healthy. There are so many different topics that you can listen to, right? And and with movement, what happens is when we're listening to something that we truly love you're able to also take into account what you like doing right so i think it's important for us to also view movement as one of those ways to move away from the screen and really do what you enjoy doing so a lot of um there's a whole lot that happens you know with the you know fitness challenge the divide 30 by 30 that's happening you know which is great and i love those initiatives but you know, it's, it's great for us to think about what we like doing An emphasis on the word enjoy, right? If you enjoy something, you will do it again and again. And that kind of um, guarantees consistency. And that kind of helps build resilience. It's great for our emotional health. But what happens is often that we, you know, watch on social media, CrossFit is great, lunges are great, crunches are great. And then we get into that whole rhythm of doing that. And then we don't enjoy doing it, right? After a point of time, if it doesn't suit you, because again, we're all unique. And that's when we need to look at things uh, differently. What do I like doing? I have a superpower. How can I employ that, right? You need to look at movement that way. And then I love the whole idea. And I, I know I'm pushing it too much right now, but I love the whole idea of, you know, listening to a podcast and moving. It just goes side. By side. It doesn't have to be anything. You just have to have like a, take a little walk around the block, you know, uh, walk your pet and listen to a podcast. It's so much more better than, you know, watching something on the screen.
0: Yeah, well, you don't want to stop. You don't want to stop the podcast because you know you're not going to go back and listen to it. So you walk for an hour so that you can.
1: It's funny. Sorry. It feeds into those habits. No, I'm saying it feeds into that habit, right? It keeps that that whole loop going. Yeah. I what you said about the gym was interesting
0: because I do um, with this whole COVID, I've been working out at home a lot more instead of going to classes every single day, and I see that I used to trudge through workouts, and now I go to one F45 class on Friday, and I love it. And I see some other people trudging through their workouts. And it's interesting. Like it's, an, it's not, it's great to move your body, but I feel like it's better to do it if you're like really into it than sort of yeah. forcing it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great way to, you know, actually view it, you know, in terms of forcing it, but a lot of times what we do with movement is we use it as a way to burn what we ate last, right? So we'll hear a whole lot of, you know, things like, I want to work out today because I ate a whole pizza. This is like, and it's it's sad that we normalize that kind of talk, right? It's sad that we normalize uh, what movement should actually mean. Because if you look at movement, it increases cognition. It increases the neuroplasticity in your brain. It increases your emotional stability, your mental hygiene, and all of these things, essentially building resilience. So looking at movement as those kinds of advantages rather than just You know, thinking about body size or, you know, the way you want to um, think about nutrition, which is not the most healthy way to, you know, think about nutrition in that sense also, because you shouldn't be burning things off um, and being guilty about that. That's a trajectory towards, you know, a lack of self-love. So yeah, looking at movement in a way to enjoy it rather than just punishing yourself. Is there a shift from, you
0: know, everyone always says calories in, calories out. That's the basis Mm -hmm. for everything. But lately I'm seeing, you know, women's hormones and stress and what you're eating. Is there a move away from the CECO at all? Or is that still like a principle that's sacrosanct?
1: I am completely against the whole thing of calories in and calories out. Okay. Just because, wow. Yeah, just because um, calorie is obviously a term to determine uh, how much heat is produced via a certain food item but not all food items are created equally and the way our bodies metabolize it is also different because again we're all we all have different other factors that influence it so um, I think functionality in this case is skewed when you just think of you know when you just think about it in one kind of direction so very one-sided conversation calories in and calories out. There, it, there are no simple answers to that. There's so many other complexities attached to that. And with the recent um, exposome model that was actually discovered, it was actually stumbled upon by the CDC when they were actually working on the human genome model. They've actually discovered the whole exposome model, which is a person's lifetime exposure, exposures or the way they're exposed to certain kinds of elements in their life can actually determine the way they actually open themselves up to any kind of disease or condition also taking into account their unique physiology, genetics, epigenetics. So there's a whole lot of factors that influence you know, all of these things. So just by saying, oh, eat this and then uh, work out this is a very, very primitive way of you know, looking at um, things in that way. And I feel like we should all start moving away from that thought process and really think about um, the quality of ingredients, the quantity that we're eating. Um, as opposed to our body size, and not opposed, and, and not based on someone's, you know, kind of, um, kind of a diet guideline, you know, a kind of fat diet guideline. So I think it's important for us to think about it from a very unique perspective. From a very, um, you know, each individual is different. From that kind of a perspective.
0: Well, a lot of trainers, you know, they stick to calories in, calories out, and I think if people aren't losing weight on their regimes, they'll feel like they're not measuring up. And if your trainers just saying calories in, calories out, and you're, you know, I yeah. think. Trainers do it because they think people are being lazy and they're probably eating too much, right? But I know when I in COVID, I didn't do anything in that in the when the there was a lockdown, but add yin yoga every night so that I could sleep. And I lost weight. I didn't do anything different. In fact, I was eating more carbs. So I'm just yeah. just as a lay person, it does seem that there is more to it than just there
1: Exactly, and and you've, you've you've rightly put that. There's so much more to it. In fact, you know, so like you said, you were you know doing yoga and you were eating much more carbs. It again depends on how your body processes carbs, right? So this is another thing that we see in the whole diet culture that's there that carbs are bad for you, um, which is not essentially true. So. There is something called active carbs, and then there's something called slow carbs, right? Um, And really labeling things as good and bad food is the worst way to look at things because food does not have morality, right? There's nothing called good foods or bad foods. It's, It's basically something that we need to look at Uh, from a perspective, seeing um, what, how much do I want to eat and how frequently do I want to eat and really honoring your hunger cues, right? And that's exactly what you probably did during the pandemic and lost weight because of that. And when we say lost weight, again, there's so much more to weight, right? Because we have body fat, we have muscle mass, we have water weight, we have so many other things, those factors. So I think having a very simplistic view of calories in, calories out, losing weight, gaining weight is again, something that we need to start moving away from and looking at a more holistic picture related to that.
0: And how important is cooking your own food? Because we are a takeaway culture here, but I think there's more involved in cooking your own food than just slowing down. Like I'm hearing... Uh, People talk about it's important for you to prepare your food so that your body can start getting ready to digest it. Can you just explain that?
1: Yeah. So first of all, making a nourishing meal um, could be oddly cognitively therapeutic. For the one person that matters the most in your life, and that's yourself, right? So, um, if the pandemic has taught us anything, we've seen the whole you know banana bread challenge, Dolgona coffee challenge, and all of these things. Um, apart from all of that, cooking is an indis- indispensable life skill, right? Without that, how are we going to survive? So. When we see, and, and this, is, this is what I, um, this is what I have experienced, and I have seen this with so many people around me when you 're able to see something from start to finish, what goes uh, onto the plate or the bowl uh, you 're kind of investing more of yourself into conscious eating practices and Um, that's basically employing those higher centers of reasoning, right? And another way to step away from the screen, by the way, because you're using that time uh, to take care of yourself. So cooking brings about a dialectical calm as what we call in scientific community, because what happens is that, that whole phenomenon of the dialectical calm is basically looking at the glass half full phenomenon when we're faced with adversity, right? So, when you're able to actually look at cooking as a way that I'm going to overcome or get my own nutritive empowerment in this way, you're able to actually take control of your own uh, nutrition, your own health, your own wellness. So cooking kind of helps develop this whole um, uh, kind of Ever evolving relationship you have with ingredients, so we're all shaped by certain um, nostalgias. We're shaped by certain um, experiences, right? So when we talk about certain ingredients, like 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 you mentioned tomatoes, right? In uh, earlier in this uh, earlier when we were having this conversation. Um, Different people feel different things about, you know, just say a simple tomato, right? So my mom introduced this once before and I didn't really like it. And then I had this with my friend and I liked it. So we all have experiences with different kinds of ingredients, right? And it's difficult for us to um, think about the relationship of those ingredients always when we think about takeaway right? But when you're cooking, you're developing an ever-evolving relationship with them. So a tomato can now become a sauce. It can also be a standalone vegetable in a salad. Uh, It can also be something that you dice and put up in your couscous. It can be, you know, so many different things. So you're developing so many different relationships with those um, ingredients. So I think it's um, important for us to take advantage of that, you know, relationship building with ingredients. And I think one of the most Um, the biggest misconception that you know I find that people tell me is that um, there's this whole whimsical nature that we attach to cooking right so we think that oh it's going to take so much time to simmer it's going to take so much time to cut to you know cook I need a correct recipe to do that I need to download this from you know this website give me the recipe but really just spending time in the kitchen and it doesn't have to be that fancy it's just simple assembly of ingredients and make something that's nourishing for yourself that really connects to wholesomeness can be some, one of the most biggest acts of self-care you can do uh, for yourself. And then when you keep practicing that, right, um, it kind of nurtures that building intentionality around uh, cooking. And then it does not seem like this whole enigmatic um, experience, right? It starts to become something that you can do to relax, to be more therapeutic for yourself. And uh, and, and when we talk about takeaway culture, see it's it's easy to see the appeal in that you know because after a whole long day of work, no one wants to you know get into the kitchen and and it's okay for sometimes you know for you to actually um, have some takeaway you know sometimes here and there but when it becomes like you said a culture when it becomes and you know overtly used, Uh, practice, that's when we're falling prey to not consciously embracing nourishment, right? So just starting even 30, or let me even scale it down, 10% of the time, just starting 10% of the time for, you know, assembling a few ingredients for yourself and cooking something builds off that intentionality. And then it doesn't seem, like I said, like a very whimsical process. It seems like, oh, I can do this for myself. And I mean, cooking is something that we use to survive also, right? If you don't know how to cook and this pandemic, if it's taught you anything, if you're, lo- if you're in lockdown, you should be able to cook something, right? So this is an indispensable life skill. And I think, I think bringing back that love is very important to cooking.
0: Oh, I love it. Okay, two things I'm taking away. Food is not morality and cooking brings dialectical calm.
1: The dialectical calm, that's right.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, Remy. It's great to see you. And I'd love to have you on again. You're always like your depth of knowledge is amazing.
1: Thank you. It's always great with you. And I love all the content Live Healthy puts out. As you know, I'm a big fan. So thank you for having me and to many more. Okay. Take care.
0: That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.